and take your Bible and turn with me once more to 1 John chapter 3. I feel like I've been in chapter 3 of 1 John forever, and uh, it's been really just a, a wonderful uh, study through this chapter, which is so rich, so much rich and wonderful truth that the Apostle John wants believers to know and to understand about what it means to be children of God. You know, we've sung about that this morning. Aren't you grateful that you are a child of God? Born into the family of God, washed by the blood, born of God's Spirit, and I'm so thankful to be a part of the family of God. I don't know if any of you maybe were philosophy majors in college. I, may, I imagine maybe one or two of you might have been. But if so, then you are well aware that one of the most important thinkers in modern history was the Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau was born in 1712, and many of his ideas were extremely influential throughout 18th century Europe. His social contract was very influential even for America's founding fathers. And many of Rousseau's ideas um, kind of led to the movement that eventually became known as the French Revolution. But one of Rousseau's ideas uh, had to do with self-love. And there was a component of his, his whole philosophical system, his line of thought that says that really self-love, uh, proper love for the self, kind of lies at the heart of society and, and really is kind of what uh, holds society together. Um, now, you may agree or disagree with much of Rousseau's ideas. Our purpose is not to debate those. But when you look at Rousseau's personal life, it's obvious that he was familiar with the destructive manifestation of self-love in his own life. I find it interesting that he said that self-love was kind of what held society together, and yet his own personal life unraveled at the seams. His life was a maze of failed relationships. Uh, he fathered four illegitimate children. He abandoned all four of them as infant, infants on the step of, of a local orphanage. And so while he proclaimed really that self-love was fundamental to society, uh, it's interesting to me that he's really a walking contradiction of his own ideas. There's another great philosopher known as Linus Van Pelt in the Peanuts comic strip <laughs> who had aspirations to be a doctor and wanted to contribute to humanity and mankind to which Lucy uh, scoffed at his notion. And Linus responds to her scoffing by saying, I love mankind, but it's people I can't stand. Now, how exactly do you really define authentic love? Uh, Rousseau's definition of authentic love was very different than the definition that we find here in 1 John chapter 3. And so you're there. I, I want to read once more verse 11, but I want to read all the way through verse 18. And notice what the Apostle John has to say about love, and in particular, the way that Christians are known for the love that they have for their brother. 
John says in verse 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I want to speak from this subject this morning, what love really looks like. Because I really believe in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle John explains for his readers what love, the love of God in action, what it really looks like in terms of the Christian experience. You know, the love of God experienced through Jesus Christ is something that's life-changing. And John says that it results in an expression of love for other people. Now, we've seen that the word John uses for love many, many times throughout this little letter. It's that word agape, which is used to describe the unconditional nature of God's love. Now, for the writers of the New Testament, the truth of God loving imperfect people in a perfect way was such a wonderful concept that a new word really had to be invented just to describe it. J.I. Packer said that this word agape seems to have been a Christian invention, a new word to describe something wonderful, something new. It was almost a completely non-existent word before the New Testament. When in the New Testament, we see it show up more than 200 times or so. And so the word agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's agape love that John is describing in this paragraph. And because it is really supernatural, it's not, it's not uh, a form of natural affection, but it's a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. This is something that Galatians 5 says. That means that this kind of love is more a matter of will than feeling. You say, how do you know that? Well, because Christians love their enemies. And that's not something that comes natural to us. Love for one's enemy is contrary to everything that we would feel. So in order for me to even be able to love my enemy, to pray for a person who would hurt me, wound me, persecute me, as Jesus says I'm to do, then that's going to require a supernatural kind of love that I don't possess naturally. So this agape love that the Apostle John is describing here, this is the divine love of God that is supernaturally produced in the life of the believer through the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you go through all 105 verses of 1 John, you'll find out that he uses this word agape no less than 45 times. 
And primarily, he speaks about three kinds of love in 1 John. Uh, There's God's love for us. Uh, There's our love for God. But notice here, he's describing the love that we have for one another as brothers and sisters in the faith. And so that's really his emphasis here in this passage. Now, notice a few things from the text. First of all, notice the primary explanation of love that John gives. We see this verses 11 through 13. I won't spend a lot of time here since we considered these verses last week. But John tells us that love for one another is the essence of the message that we've heard from the beginning, which simply means that it lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It's not peripheral to the Christian experience, but it's central. And to make his point, John will present us with a series of contrasts. And he's often done that throughout 1 John. Uh, He's contrasted things like uh, love and hate or truth with lies, light with darkness, righteousness with sin, uh, children of God with the children of the devil. Well, here in this passage, he's using another contrast to show us what love for one's brother really looks like and what it doesn't. And to make his point, he goes back to the Old Testament and uses this life of Cain as an illustration, which he then contrasts with the life of Christ. So what does love for my brother look like? Well, John says, here's a negative example of Cain. This is what it doesn't look like. And he holds that in contrast with the positive example of Christ. This is what it looks like. So by placing believers somewhere in the middle of these two examples, John is trying to urge us away from the one and toward the other. He's saying we should not be like Cain, the negative example. No love for your brother and your sister. If you want to know what that really looks like, look to the positive example of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us in self-sacrifice. So agape love, by John's definition, is self-sacrificial. And it's illustrated perfectly in the death of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. Now, you don't have to go there. We went there last week. But Genesis chapter 4, what was Cain's sin? Well, you've got he and his brother. They're both worshipers. They're both coming to present their offerings before God. And, and Cain is bringing sort of a, a hodgepodge of vegetables, things that he had grown, whereas his brother Abel brings a sacrificial offering uh, from his flock, which means there's blood, which means that Abel recognizes his need for atonement. And the Scripture says that God accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain. And this is something that Genesis 4 says uh, leads Cain. He's sort of cast down in his features. His, his face fell. His countenance fell. And his life is sort of on this trajectory at this point. God comes to him. God tells him, if, if, you, don't, uh, if you repent and you offer the acceptable offering, will you not be accepted also? But rather than humbling himself, what Cain does is he begins to nurse that envy and that jealousy and that hatred within his heart toward Abel, and he looks for an opportune time where they're out in the field together. He rises up and murders his own brother Abel. And the word that John uses to describe this, murder, is a word that means to butcher. It implies savagery and hatred. 
which means that his actions against his brother were premeditated, they were deliberate. It was the terrible expression of an inward animosity that he held toward Abel. And John says we should not be like Cain who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then he asked this question, why did he kill him? Well, what answer does he give there? Well, he says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, this ultimate act of murder grew out of a basic heart attitude within Cain. It was envy, jealousy, hate that led ultimately to his murderous actions. So really what you see is this self-centered orientation that characterized Cain's life and Cain's behavior. And John's point here is that it's different with the children of God. The children of the evil one, listen, their life, it's all about them. Self-centeredness is what drives ultimately their ambition. And John says our hearts must not be self-oriented around ourselves but for our brother because the love of God demands it. And so John goes through great length here to give us this negative example of hatred because Cain's murder of his brother, this is seen in stark contrast to the way that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that's something that he'll explain in just a couple of verses. So that's the primary explanation then that John gives. Now, notice the second thing here, and it's the personal experience of love. The personal experience of love that we've come to know personally as believers, as the children of God. He says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So love and self-sacrifice indicates that a person has passed from death into life. This is going to be fruit, outward fruit in the life of a believer who's truly passed from death into life. This outward fruit will be love for one's brother. And so there's an inward assurance, John says, that we can possess. Notice he uses this language. We know that we've passed out of death into life. That word know there, it's a present tense verb which describes an action as having been completed once for all. And so the idea is that we've come to know something through personal experience. We know that a change has taken place in us. If you're in Christ, haven't you come to know the love of God through personal experience? Isn't that something that you can testify to? Uh, can't you testify to the grace of God which has been lavishly poured out upon you and you testify to that, it's changed you, you're different because of your experience. We've passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life. In reality, there's only two spiritual realms or domains where every person resides. Every person resides either in spiritual death or in spiritual life. That's true of every person in this room. It's true for every person watching online. It's true for every single person in the world. You're either in one or two domains, spiritual death or spiritual life. And, and, and so here's the thing. The Bible teaches we don't come into this world in a place of neutrality and the choice is up to us to choose spiritual death or spiritual life. No, we come into this world alienated from God, born into spiritual death. This is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Which means all of the human race 
is born in sin. They're not just sick. They're not just broken. We're all dead spiritually, and God has to do something in order for us to have spiritual life. And that's what Paul's talking about, or, or uh, John is talking about here. We know that we've passed from death into spiritual life, and he says there's some evidence here. There's some proof that a change has taken place in my life, and that proof is this. I love my brothers and my sisters. So spiritual death, spiritual life. To say it another way, a person is either saved or unsaved, regenerate or unregenerate, walking in darkness or walking in light. You know, Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the tragic result of the fall is that death now reigns in man's fallen world. And I mean, hasn't this been so vividly demonstrated just this last week with the war and the destruction and the death and the suffering that we've seen being played out on our news feeds. And why is that? It's because humanity is born into a condition of spiritual death, separation from God, dead in trespasses and sins. We're all born into the realm of death. We live in the atmosphere and the condition of death, and the time is coming when we're going to close our eyes in death. And if that's all that there was, if we didn't have any hope, how hopeless would we really be but you see, God did something to save the world from this grip of darkness and death. Amen. Jesus, when he began his ministry, it was the prophet Isaiah, prophecy from Isaiah 9, which was fulfilled. Listen to this. Matthew 4.16 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Light stepped into our darkened world. Life entered into our death. And the gospel says that men and women who were dead in sin can now possess life through faith in Jesus Christ. How is it that a person passes from spiritual death into spiritual life? It's by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes the gospel, that Christ died for my sin, that Christ rose again from the dead, believe the gospel, and you pass from death into life, and God changes you from the inside out. And what will be the result of this change? Well, John says here it's going to be love. Love for your brother. Love for your sister. Love for people. And so there's this principle of life then. This makes the Christian different. There's a change. And that's something John says, I can know with certainty. Now listen, notice he's not talking about just mere religious experience here. He's talking about life change. He's talking about someone who's passed from death to life. There are a lot of people who have religion and have had religious experiences, but they've never passed from death to life. You can be a respectable person and still be dead in your trespasses and sins. You can be a religious person and still be dead in your trespasses and sins. You can be respectable in the eyes of the world. You can think you've got it all together. You can think that you've got all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed, but you can still be dead in your trespasses and sins. 
John is talking about something miraculous here. He's talking about salvation here. And the proof that one has truly come to possess this life will be the love that characterizes this man or this woman. It's the same thing that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and even if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So apart from love, I am nothing. I gain nothing. That's what Paul is saying in in 1 Corinthians 13. And then you compare this to what John says. Look down at verse 15. His words serve as a shock to the system as he says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So he would lump us into the same category with Cain if we hate our brother. That word hate there, it's a present tense verb that suggests habitual action. He says the same thing back in chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So he's describing someone whose settled disposition and behavior toward another person is one of animosity. John is saying that this one who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness no matter what that person says. Because listen, you can't have hate and love in your heart at the same time. And I'm telling you, this really gets home to where we live in a relational sense, does it not? Because our relationships with each other, they're messy at times. We all have disagreements with other people in our lives over a variety of issues. And all of us can say that we've said things, we've done things, we've acted in ways that sometimes hurt those in our lives, even those that we would say we love the most. But let me tell you something, where two Christians disagree with one another, where two Christians have a falling out with one another, the love of God within them compels them to work it out. Because they can't stay in just this position of perpetual animosity and hatred toward one another. You know where they pass each other in the hallway without looking in each other's direction? You ever had anybody do that to you? Wouldn't speak to you for whatever reason? Folks, let me tell you, you know Jesus and the love of God's in you. You can't live there. And if you can live there, there better be a reality check in your life, a spiritual checkup in your heart and in your life. And often when we become angry, when we become upset with a brother or a sister, if we're not careful, over time that can turn into a resentment that poisons our entire Christian life. And I've seen it happen in the church where someone gets upset for some particular reason and it festers and it festers and it festers and before you know it, it's affected everything in their life. Someone said that bitterness, it's like drinking a poison and expecting the other person to die. What is it that happens when you drink poison? It it, it kills you. It messes you up. And so this is why Jesus says what he does in the Sermon on the Mount, that forgiveness and grace and forgiving others as we have been forgiven, this is what distinguishes 
his followers. So in this sense, the one who hates his brother really is no different than Cain, whom he's just described. Now, our legal system might not equate hating a person with the actual murder of that person, but the law of God always probes much deeper. It deals with the attitude of the heart, which underlies the actions of the hand. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell fire. So God is concerned not simply with the action of the hand, but with the inward attitude of the heart, because actions always stem from inner attitudes. Jesus said it's the heart that defiles a person. It's what comes from the heart. Where does murder ultimately come from? It comes from the heart. Where does sexual immorality and all these, where does it all ultimately come from? It comes from the heart. And what does the gospel do? The gospel gets to the heart of the issue, which is the heart. I've got to have a new heart. And the good news is that any person who wants a new heart can be given a new heart in Jesus Christ. Anyone, any person, because God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So John is simply saying here, hatred, this is the first step toward murder. Now, notice a, second, a third thing here, and that's the perfect example of love. This personal experience, verses 14 and 15, notice how he gets to the example, the positive example, the perfect example of love in verse 16. You, you know John 3, 16, well, what about 1 John 3.16? And what's amazing is if you say them together, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So lest we ever forget, Jesus Christ is love made manifest. As God in human flesh, he perfectly embodies what love for God and love for one's neighbor is to truly look like. And John says that this love is most clearly seen through Christ's redemptive work on the cross. He says, by this we know love which is to say this is the clearest definition, the most sublime example of love, that he laid down his life for us, which means while I was still in my sin, while I was hopeless in the realm of spiritual death, helpless to do anything about my condition, perfect love compelled the Son of God to selfless and sacrificial action. Perfect love for the Father demonstrated in perfect obedience to his divine law, all met with sacrificial love for those guilty and helpless creatures who deserve death. The creator died in the place of his creatures so that those creatures might live. And if you ever get tired of that message, oh, listen, that's what we're going to be singing and praising God for, for all of eternity, that God would go to such great lengths to save his creature. And that's the supreme example of love. It's the cross of Jesus where love is fully demonstrated, 
Which, by the way, did you know, you, you've probably seen this as you've read through the New Testament, but there's hardly a verse in the New Testament that speaks of God's love that does not also speak of the cross, either directly in the verse or within the context. Often where you see the love of God being described, being explained in some passage in the New Testament, within that same context, there's the language of the cross and what God did at the cross. Again, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians 2, 20, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He said, well, why is this important? Because listen, in an age of love, Defined by all things self-centered, the cross stands as a stark contrast, doesn't it? The cross of Jesus stands as a rebuke to the self-centered kind of love, which is true of our culture. We've seen this so often that the culture and the church, often we like to use the same language, simply because so much of post-Christian America and our culture, American culture, sort of the vestiges of Christianity and so we like to use a lot of the same vocabulary, but let me tell you, the Bible and the culture, they're, they're different definitions. We may use the same vocabulary, but they're often very different definitions. The world talks about love. Culture uses the language of love, but it's not this love of self-sacrifice that we see in agape love that John describes as defined by the cross. So the cross is the measure of God's love. It calls me to a love which lays down my life for the sake of another rather than the kind which is self-seeking. And that's the application that John makes in verse 16. Listen. Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's not a me-centered kind of love, is it? That's not the language of self-centeredness here. This is not the kind of love which says, I will love you if I get something in return from you. This is the language of sacrifice. This is selfless love. And that's the love of God. And so on the basis of Christ's death for us, John says that we as believers are now under moral obligation to love one another in such a way that we lay down our lives for our brother or for our sister. Now listen, I know that may be hard for us to imagine a situation where that would ever be within the realm of possibility, but I guarantee you there's some believers right now in Ukraine who are living here, who are experiencing this very thing right now. I guarantee you there's some believers right now in Iran or North Korea or other parts around the world who have so demonstrated their love for their brother, their sister, that they've laid down their life. It may be hard for us to imagine that kind of thing in the West, but you know something? I think there's some very practical application here because there's this very real sense in which we need to lay down our lives every day in our relationships with other people. You say, what do you mean? Well, think about this. In, in the context of a marriage relationship, most marital disagreements 
ultimately can be traced back to some type of self-centered action or attitude on the part of one spouse or both spouses. And that unmet need or that unresolved conflict, ultimately, it's not resolved because both parties aren't willing to lay down their arms and love each other with the selfless kind of self-sacrificial love that's defined by the cross. Same thing's true in our relationships with people. Our relationships with the church. Love for my brother, love for my sister. I ought to lay down my life in terms of my service in the church. Now think about this. A lot of people, they'll serve within the context of the church in as much as it benefits them personally. That's not the language or the love of the cross. You ought to ask this question. Why do I do what I do? Why do I serve the way that I serve? Why do I give the way that I give? Is it motivated by self-interest, a sort of a me-centered kind of mentality? And, you know, if you don't necessarily get what you want, you're going to kind of be like LeBron James and say, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach, you know? Some of you don't get what I'm talking about. Those of you sports fans, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are a lot of people in the church who say, you know what? I'm taking my talents elsewhere. Why? Because it's really all about you. And you're going to find somewhere, someplace where it can be all about you. And John is saying to us, that is not the love of God. That is not the love that's demonstrated at the cross. Because the love that we see at the cross is selfless. It's sacrificial. And I'm through but the practical expression of this is verses 17 and 18. Notice John gets specific. He's talking about brothers, plural, but now in verse 17 he gets very specific, doesn't he? If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, singular. Very specific. There's a shift. It's easy for us to be general when it comes to love, but you know something? We need to be specific, don't we? It's easy for me to say I love people, but it's another thing entirely for me to demonstrate that I love those individual persons in my life or those people that I come into contact with through day-to-day -day living. Sometimes saying that we love everybody in general can actually become an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Who is it in your life currently that God wants you to love specifically? That someone in your family, that someone far from God, and someone maybe you work with, that someone maybe you live beside. And God's brought that person into your life for whatever reason, but perhaps that reason is for you to show some kind of specific, tangible, particular expression of love. Love in action, that's what the Apostle John is calling us to here, isn't it? How do I love? How do I do this? Well, left up to myself, I can't. But the Spirit of God in me can love others through me. And that is the point. I love simply because I am loved in Christ. And that's why I can go through life now with, a, with an open hand rather than a clenched fist. Y'all remember the song, the hymn, the lyrics to the, the hymn, We Are One in the Spirit. We're one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity will one day be restored. 
and they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. May it be so. Let's stand for prayer this morning. That's what Jesus said. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And the love that we have within the family of God, my, how this is a powerful testimony to a world around us that desperately needs to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus personally? Can you say with confidence that you've passed from death into life? If not, why not today? Why not today turn from your sin? Place your faith and trust in Christ who died for you, who rose again from the dead, and be saved. Would you bow with me? Lord, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, how it convicts and cuts and goes to work in our lives. Lord, may it be said of our lives, they will know that we're Christians by our love. And God, may it be a very specific, tangible, particular love. Not just in talk, because talk is cheap. But John says, in deed and in truth, in action. And so, Lord, show us what that looks like every day. May we not be so quick to dismiss our circumstances or the people in our lives, because these may very well be people that you bring into our life to show some kind of particular love. Maybe someone that doesn't even know the Lord and the way that we love that person may open a door of opportunity for us to share the gospel with that person and lead that person to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we long for, Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.